It resembled something more like a bomb shelter or doomsday bunker than an apartment. There were wall-to-wall steel cabinets, file cabinets. There was that foil-layered insulation to keep the sound out, and I don't know, radio waves or microwaves or whatever it was. There were books everywhere that you turned. They were dimly lit by these randomly placed lamps. And then there was the photographs and the newspaper clippings that were up on the wall. And there was a spider web of pushpin anchored yarn that connected all of these things connecting faces with world events. Then there were the booby traps. There were the incendiary devices, should that location be compromised. This is what the fictional refuge of the fictional character Jerry Fletcher was like in that 1997 movie Conspiracy Theory. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but as you watch this movie, and you watch this character, this conspiracy theorist, you just can't help but, but think that because this guy is so extreme, so paranoid, so compulsive, so suspicious of anything and everything in life, that you can't help but think, there's something wrong with this guy. In fact, he's one of those guys that many people would probably quickly label as crazy. And you wouldn't think anyone could take him seriously. And yet, fast forward to 2020, and conspiracy theories are a dime a dozen, aren't they? And the, uh, the really surprising thing to me is it, we don't look at these conspiracies, all of them, as, as, as crazy, do we? In fact, there's people all around us, maybe you're one of them, that is actually thinking that some of these conspiracy theories actually has some credibility, there's something to this. It seems like it, it's undeniable. I had a man knocking on my door last Sunday after church, actually about dinner time. He's pounding on my front door. The doorbell doesn't work, so I kind of understood that. And I went out there, and I spoke with him for what seemed like an hour and a half. Maybe it was 45 minutes, but it was excruciating. And as he was talking, it got more and more heated, and he kept waving his arms up in the air saying, where is the sanity? Where is the sanity? And I couldn't help but, but sympathize with him. Because the more that I look around at our world, it seems like it's going insane. We live in, a, in an age of, of power-crazed opportunities, opportunists, of reckless narcissists, killer viruses, natural disasters, and those are just a few of the things that we're dealing with. And all of that has produced this increasing number of people who are prone to suspicion, prone to conspiracy theories, and even prone to fear. As I listen to my neighbor rant, rant yeah, I, I couldn't blame him. These are crazy times. And it does seem like there are powerful forces at work in the background. And yet, what I've had to come back to time and time again is 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Isn't that good? 
My question is, how can we not have a spirit of fear when these forces against us seem so very real and seem so very powerful? Well, thank the Lord for Genesis 41 because it helps us unravel and answer that question. There he lay, surrounded by silk and gold, the gentle cool of the evening floating in through the room. But apart from that, everything was still. All was well. All was good. This was the, a bedroom that many people would probably only ever dream of. But for the man who was inside, this was a chamber of nightmares. Listen to the words of Genesis 41, verse 1. It says this. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing beside the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. No interpretation. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Two years after that birthday we read about back in Genesis chapter 40. Two years after Joseph, the man in prison, interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Two years after Joseph had thought that he found a way out. Two years of waiting. Two years of wondering. Two years of trusting and serving. And then Pharaoh dreamed. We mentioned last week that dreams were a very big deal to ancient Egyptians because dreams were a way to connect with other realms, right? Gain insight into the natural world, insight into what's going on in my life and what might come of my life, what's in my future, and what is the afterlife actually like. And so they had professional dream interpreters, magicians, uh, smart, wise people. They had their books, their dream books, that they would crack open and they would try to discern what these dreams actually meant. Dreams mattered. But when Pharaoh dreamed, that was another matter entirely. Pharaoh, he was more than a great leader. Pharaoh was more than lord of the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. Pharaoh was considered a god. He was the morning 
and the evening star. He was an earthbound deity. More than anyone else, he had a connection to the supernatural worlds. So when Pharaoh dreamed, it was of premier importance. We gotta find out what that dream or those dreams meant. The fact that Pharaoh dreamed two similar dreams back to back, well, that made the interpretation even more urgent. So he summoned not just one, not two, not ten. He summoned all the magicians in all of Egypt. Pharaoh was troubled. The author of Genesis, Moses, he gives us a behind-the-scenes look into what was going on with Pharaoh. He lets us see his fragility, the fragility of humankind's most godlike individual. Do you remember what the serpent said back in Genesis chapter 3? He said to Adam and Eve, eat this fruit and you will become like God. Well, here he was. The epitome of that dream. The highest example of a human being being transformed into God-likeness. And what's happening to him? He's dreaming dreams. And he's troubled by them. He was the one who had more control than any other. And yet he wasn't even in control of the images that were passing through his mind at night. Now we the readers, we know where dreams come from because we've seen dreams come time and time again in the book of Genesis. But this man not only didn't know where the dreams were coming from, but he was powerless to understand what they meant. So he calls out for help. And there's none who could give a satisfying answer. That must have been distressing. Must have been disturbing. And then, seeing the desperation, probably seeing this as an opportunity to maybe boost himself in the eyes of Pharaoh, that cupbearer, do you remember the cupbearer from last week? He breaks his silence. And he tells the Pharaoh about this prisoner, this prisoner who surprisingly interpreted not only his dream, but also the dream of the baker, and they came true exactly the same way as Joseph said they would. So Pharaoh says, bring him in. Let's get Joseph. And from pit to palace in the matter of minutes, hours, I don't know. We know that Joseph had to clean up. You don't stand before this God without cleaning yourself up. So the Bible says that he shaved and he changed his clothes. Hopefully he took a bath. Can you imagine? Can you imagine yourself in Joseph's shoes? Can you imagine how mentally unprepared you would be for that from that moment. Imagine how intimidating it would have been. Imagine thinking, trying to recall in your mind, okay, now how am I supposed to act before Pharaoh? I've never been before Pharaoh before. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to stand? Am I supposed to kneel? Can I look him in the eye when I'm done? Do I have to make sure my back isn't turned to him and just back away? What do I do? It must have been so intimidating. How was Joseph going to be able to hold up in the presence of this mighty king. We're about to find out. 
Read on with me in Genesis 41, verse 15. It tells us, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, you you would think, you would think that if you were all of a sudden in the presence of a man who thought himself to be God, and that was a general consensus of all the people in the land, that you would be rather careful what you say. You'd probably measure very carefully the things that you did and the things that you said so that you didn't upset or offend in any way, right? I've heard, I've heard that that's often what happens when people visit the White House. There's just something about that place, the, the power that it, it represents that just gives visitors pause. Chuck Colson has written about that. The incredible thing here, though, is that as mighty as Pharaoh was, we don't see anything of Joseph showing even the slightest hint of being intimidated. Pharaoh says, so I hear you can interpret dreams. And then immediately Joseph fires back and says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That phrase, it is not in me, that's one word in the Hebrew. It's short, it's to the point. It's as if Joseph almost said, nope, you're wrong. I'm not the guy, not me. And then, not only did he do that, but he has the boldness to say, the one who's going to interpret this dream for you, the dream master, that's God. Elohim is the one that you're looking for. And here we have, in a single moment, Joseph declaring that this God-man, first of all, is wrong. Joseph isn't the one who's going to interpret this dream. It's God. Then he exposes himself as a non-Pharaoh worshiper. That probably wouldn't have been Uh, received well. Then he implies that the common practice of dream interpretation going on in Egypt, that that all those wizards, all those magicians, all those wise men, they're completely inadequate. And also that there is one God who is superior to this self-proclaimed God that was sitting there in front of him. Where did this boldness, where did this fearless confidence come from? Could it be that the past 13 years that he spent enslaved and in prison had taught him who his ever-present God was? Could it be that he knew that there was none like the Lord who was with him, with him even when his rights were taken away? With him, even when he had been falsely accused. With him, even as he was stuck in prison for a crime that he didn't even commit. Joseph is bold. Pharaoh seems unmoved. Maybe, as Pharaoh listened to all this, maybe he, he just listened with amusement. Hmm. That's, that's nice, now let's move on. Or maybe he was just so desperate to get to the bottom of, of the interpretation of these dreams that he just didn't care. Whatever the reason was, Pharaoh proceeds to tell Joseph 
his dreams. And he tells them of the healthy, good-looking cows. And he tells them of the poor, ugly, cannibalistic cows. And he tells them of, of the ears of grain that swallowed up those healthy ears of grain. I wonder, I wonder as Pharaoh was speaking, if Joseph thought it ironic that he's sharing these dreams and as he's doing it, he's essentially admitting his helplessness. Pharaoh's helpless. Joseph responded to Pharaoh in verse 25. Listen to what he says. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. You know what astounds me about Joseph's interpretation here is that he doesn't just interpret the dream and give its meaning. But instead, he uses this moment as an opportunity to declare to Pharaoh and everyone else in that room that there is someone mightier than this demigod of a king. As powerful and as sovereign as all of that court must have felt and believed themselves to be, there was another who held their destiny. Even the thoughts inside of their heads and the plans that they had, they were in the palms of another's hand. He makes that clear again and again. And again, he already said in verse 16 that God would be the one who would give him a favorable, a reliable answer to his dreams. Notice in verse 25, he said that God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, he repeats, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 32, he doubles down. The doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. The fact that Pharaoh had two dreams, that meant that it was clear. This was a done deal. God was going to make it happen. There was no changing it. There was nothing that even the most powerful man in all the world could do to prevent it. It was going to happen. And the language that Joseph used, it made that loud and clear. As one commentator put it, the future in Egypt does not depend upon Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal to the future of the kingdom. Joseph has calmly announced to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. In Genesis 41, it's clear that Pharaoh can cause no future. 
nor can he resist the future God will bring. And herein lies the crucial reminder for all of us living in these difficult days, these trying times. There is only one true king. There is only one true king. As you and I look around at a world that is cracked and crumbling, as we suspect ill intentions out there, as we sometimes even see outright evil taking place, we witness right being called wrong and wrong being called right as we hear those conspiracy theories. And we begin to think that they're not all that far-fetched. We need to remember that there's one king who's sovereign over all. That nothing else escapes his watchful eye. That nothing is beyond the reach of his powerful control. Nothing surprises him. Nothing happens that he does not allow. No schemes or evil plots that he's not already aware of and does not already have judgment lined up to exact. Listen to what God said to King Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know. From the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Man, Cyrus must have felt pretty small after hearing those words. At least he should have felt small. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate and didn't say anything? Pilate said, you will not speak to me, to me. You're not going to speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And how did Jesus respond? John 19, 11, Jesus says, you would have no authority over me. No authority at all unless it had been given you from above. Cyrus, Pilate, Pharaoh, the Bible lists many, many people who had the exact same revelatory experience that they are not the ones in control. And that there is only one true authority. Who are the leaders that you're frustrated with? <laughs> it doesn't take long for them to come to my mind. They're there, they're there, they're there. I know exactly who they are. Who are the rulers who use their powers abusively, who seem bent on doing things, sometimes that just seem downright wrong? 
Who are the people or the organizations that you suspect are behind the scenes? They're pushing buttons. They're pulling the strings so that their dark agenda might be pushed forward in the world. Remember that there is only one. There is only one. And he is far more powerful than they. And he's holding their leashes. He's holding them tight. And he's using them ultimately to bring about his will, not theirs. I like what one pastor said. He said, kings do not make history. Rather, God uses them to affect history. That's powerful, isn't it? When the rulers of the world, they tempt you to fear, remember that they are but pawns in the hands of a sovereign God. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We don't have to panic. We don't have to freak out or give way to fear. Because despite what anyone else in this weary world believes, there is only one true king. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then why is it? that our tendency is so very often to entertain suspicions, to get all upset by these conspiracy theories, to wring our hands, to cower in fear, or be consumed with anger and start gathering weapons so that we can fight. Why are those the ways that we tend to respond rather than falling to our knees, seeking the one who holds all of the strings, all of the cards? Could it be that our gaze is far too often set on the would-be kings out there rather than on the king of kings? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm, 20, Psalm 42, 5 through 6. Someone might say, well, you know, praising and praying to God and trusting him, well, that's all fine and good, but doesn't that just end up leaving us in, in kind of a passive kind of attitude? Isn't believing in God just uh, an excuse to do nothing? to sit on our hands, does he really want just a bunch of people who are checking out, bowing their heads, and waiting for another Savior to arrive? Does, does believing that God is in control and that he's revealed his truth in his word and how it's all going to work out in the end, does believing all of that just lead us to passivity? Well, let's look at the example we have before us here. Joseph believed in God and that what God had fixed was fixed. It was going to happen. He had a big view of God. Look at verse 34. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers. This is Joseph talking. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during those seven plentiful years. 
and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now, this is really interesting. Some might think that if you're trusting God, well, then you're just not going to do anything, and you're just going to wait for God to do what he does. It should just leave you to, just lead you to give up or sit back and watch God do all the work. And yet that's the opposite of what Joseph did. After he interpreted Pharaoh's dream and learned himself of the seven good years that were coming and the seven bad years that were coming, Joseph immediately suggests action. He says, God's going to do something here, so we better get ready for it. Let's gather up some leadership here, get them in place. Let's start storing up food so that we're going to be prepared for those seven years of famine that are coming. It's go time. Let's move. To those who trust God and believe the things that he has said and that they're going to come, his word doesn't lead them to passivity. It leads to action. It fills them with motivation to be part of the work that God is going to do. And that's why we share the good news with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family. It's why we send missionaries out there overseas to the far reaches of the globe. It's why we don't sit back and let these facilities just start to crumble and rot over time. No, we keep them up. In fact, we improve them so that they might better serve the work of God that is coming in the days ahead. It's why we strive for personal holiness. It's why we spend time renewing our minds with God's word. We know that God's not going to, to stop He's not going to give up on us. He's going to finish the work that he started. He's going to complete it. So we do all that we can to become what God has called us to be. Because our king is the king of all things. We respond to his word with enthusiastic action. We march forward with purpose and resolve. In the name of the King. Is that the way you respond to the words of your King? Joseph put it out there. He put it all on the line. He didn't know how Pharaoh was going to, be, to, to, to respond to his God-centered interpretation here. If Pharaoh didn't like what he said, well, his fate very well could have been the same as the fate of the baker two years prior to that. But remember, God was in command here, not Pharaoh. And even though he was standing before the most powerful man on earth, Joseph still had confidence that what God had revealed to him in his dreams some 13 years before, that God was still going to make good on those dreams. He didn't know how. He didn't know when. But he knew that his king was king. And that what he said would come to be. So he marched forward in the name of the king and watched as the king lifted him from the pit and into the palace. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, 
can we find a man like this in whom the, is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh didn't know Joseph's God. Maybe he had heard the the name Elohim in passing at one point or another. He didn't know anything about him. He should have been insulted. He should have been offended at the mention of him. But instead, he found himself giving God praise. And then, as one who was completely under God's sovereign hand must do, he did exactly as God intended him to do. That's because there has only ever been and only ever will be one true king. Who is your king? Do you find yourself looking for a leader who will stand for truth and justice and do what's honorable, bring about the change that the world desperately needs? You won't find that leader among the people that are walking this earth. They'll disappoint you. They'll hurt you. They may even abuse you. There's only one true king. And the good news is, he's good. And he cares for you. He's so good, in fact, that he saw the world in need. (laughs) A world filled with people losing their sanity as they wandered away from him in search for significance and satisfaction, doing things their own way. And he saw them. And he sent help. He sent Jesus that their wandering might be forgiven, that their path might be realigned with his, and they might be brought back to their maker. Do you know that king? If you don't, you can. All you need to do is confess your sin, that you've wandered, just like the rest of us, just like all of us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then turn from it. Renounce it. Say, Lord, that was where I've been going. The path I have been walking down has not been walking towards you. It's been walking away from you. It's been my own path. I've been going my own way. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to turn to you. And then you trust that Jesus Christ the Savior of the world, the promised one, the Messiah, was sent to take your sin upon himself. That, all that guilt he took upon himself as he hung there on that cross. And on that cross, he paid for it in full. The debt that you should have paid, the death that you should have died, he died in your place. And you trust him. And you thank him. And you follow him. Would you do that? There's only one true king. Would you turn to him? For those of us who have already trusted that one true king, we need to continue 
to live in the knowledge that he is still the king. We need to live each moment trusting and marching forward in his name. You know, some of these conspiracy theories that are out there, they seem pretty plausible these days. There's, there's no denying that evil exists. And there's no denying that, that people will use their evil intentions to twist scenarios to benefit from them. But let's never forget this. That even though there's evil in the world, he who is in you, if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ and his spirit lives within you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's but one true king. There is one king to whom all others, either knowingly or unknowingly, submit. And that is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and Joseph. So when the rulers of this world, they tempt you, tempt you to fear, remember that they are but pawns in the hands of the one who is sovereign. Our world is troubled, but he's overcome the world. So with confidence and boldness and conviction, let's march forward in the name of the King.